friends, colleagues, welcome. It's very nice to see you all here for this important lecture in our Mansfield series. Um, because we have welcoming back um, our former principal, David Marquand. And uh, as you all know, David Bond is one of Britain's leading political thinkers. And, uh, and so there's nothing nicer than to draw him back and to have him uh, let us share what he's um, exercised about at this particular moment. Um, and there was a wonderful review about this book. Um, and by my colleague, actually, in the House of Lords, Ken Morgan, uh, a fine historian. And, and Ken described David as a man of many parts. We in Scotland say many parts. Anyway, but uh, he's most certainly a man of many parts. He was a leader writer in the newspapers, he was a Labour MP, he was a Eurocrat. That's an insult nowadays in certain quarters, but not to us. Uh, an Oxford Don, and of course the principal of this college. But above all, I mean, he is one of Britain's, I think, probably finest public intellectuals. Um, he has really been um, an outstanding contributor to left thinking. And, uh, and what's so wonderful about David is that he straddles that world of scholarship and politics. And as I was embarrassing him as we were before we came over, I was saying that his group, one of the great strengths is that he um, makes accessible complex ideas and he's a great articulator of uh, the, the things that are exercising people at the moment. He's a very witty and pithy writer and tonight he's going to talk about his newest book. It's outside. And after you've heard him speaking, I hope that you will rush to the table and, at a bargain price, purchase this fabulous book, because it really is great. I love the cover of this book. Isn't it great? It's yes. a lovely cover. It doesn't look like you, but um, anyway, it's, uh, it, shows, it shows the Houses of Parliament like a casino in Las Vegas. And maybe that's the direction of travel. Anyway, this book was called Mammon's Kingdom, and it's really an essay about Britain today. And the best person you could ever have to discuss such a thing with is our colleague and friend, David Markham. Well, thank you, Helena. It's very moving for me to be here because uh, in many, many ways, uh, I, the best six years of my life were spent as principal of this college, the happiest and most fulfilling. Um, and uh, there are one or two people here I can recognize who were here when I was principal. There aren't many left now, but uh, you know, yes. we, we happy few, we happy few. Uh, and uh, it's also very, very, very appropriate in, in another sense too, um, because uh, the chaplain of this college has to be in the reformed tradition. Uh, and uh, John Milton, one of my heroes, appears again and again uh, in this book, not so much as a poet, but as a political writer of wonderful, tough, powerful prose, long before he uh, set out to write uh, Paradise Lost. In the, in the old days, I, don't, I hope this is going to happen again. Uh, there was in the uh, senior common room 
a portrait of Cromwell. It's back there. It's back! Oh, all right, all right, all right. There were, there were one think, or two. I think, yeah, I think we're the only college in Oxford that has a portrait of I, I'm sure you are. And we are. Because, because uh, there was one member of the SCR in those days who didn't want to have it because Cromwell was a regicide. But there you are. We stuck to our guns and we kept Charles the Charles I was a tyrannicide. Exactly, yes, exactly. And anyway, Milton wrote a pamphlet, I think, explaining why getting rid of tyrants was perfectly justifiable and not a crime at all. I can't remember the title now, but I expect... The tenure of Kings and tenure Magistrates. Tenure of Kings and Magistrates, that's right. Anyway, um, what am I trying to do in this book? Um, you were very nice about it. Uh, well, I'm going to start off in a very peculiar, kind of roundabout, back-to-front way, um, by saying what I'm not trying to do. Uh, this, I emphasize very early on, is not intended to be a manifesto. It is not intended to be a program for government that is not putting forward a set of policies, except illustratively, of other themes. What I'm doing here is calling for a wide-ranging, no-holds-barred, national conversation, drawing on what I call the buried riches of our culture, religious as well as philosophical and political. The conversation I try to show must involve all the main traditions of our political culture, conservative, liberal, and socialist or social democratic. The conversation should not be, I emphasize, an end in itself. Ultimately, <coughs> actions are what matter, not words. But before we can act, we have to know what we want to do and where we want to go. At the moment, it seems to me, as a people, we don't. There is plenty of anger around much of it healthy and justified, but the angry and those they are angry with are talking past each other. So I'm calling here in this book for what I call a revolution of sentiment to hammer out a new public <coughs> philosophy to replace the now bankrupt philosophy of the 90s and the noughties. <coughs> now, critics especially critics from what I think I have to call the conventional left, object to this. One such critic, a very distinguished historian, a lifelong member of the Labour Party, um, whom I've known as such since my early 20s, um, said the call for a national conversation was a feeble anticlimax. Why didn't I offer a shopping list of policy proposals, like the ones that Thomas Piketty offers in his wonderful but very long and difficult book, Capital in the 21st Century. Now, this school of critics, I suggest, are captives to the old, top-down, laborist view of politics. You put forward a manifesto, you win power on the basis of that manifesto. You drive it through Parliament 
and bingo, Bob's your uncle. You've changed the world, or at least the country. I call this the chocolate bar theory of politics. You put your programmatic penny into the slot at the top of the machine, you pull the right lever, and the bar, the chocolate bar of implementation, comes out at the bottom. The model is based on the experience of the actual government. Uh, and there is no warmer admirer of the Attlee government than me. But in fact, the changes that were carried through by that government followed a century-long conversation about what Thomas Carlyle called the condition of England question, a conversation that started long before the Labour Party was founded and cut across party boundaries thereafter. That was the public philosophy that provided the basis of the Ackley government's programme. It owed as much to liberals like Keynes and Beveridge and to conservatives like Harold Macmillan and R.A. Butler as to self-proclaimed and self-identified socialists. A radically different national conversation was started by Friedrich Hayek, uh, towards the end of the Second World War, and that helped to engender the public philosophy that made the Thatcher government's revolution possible uh, 40 years later. The truth is, I suggest, that lasting changes can't be forced down society's throat by fiat from the central state, however enlightened that state may be. There has to be a revolution of sentiment before there can be a revolution of policy. Without a global conversation, Piketty's list of global reforms will be, I'm afraid, little more than an intellectual curiosity. Besides, as we speak, in the non-English nations of Great Britain, often forgotten in England that these little nations exist at all, although I think even the English is now dawned on them that there is such a place as Scotland, but uh, um, the Scottish independence refer referendum generated what seems to me to have been an extraordinarily impressive national conversation. And the no victory, I imagine, I'm afraid I wasn't able to be there. I missed that, I miss, miss it a lot, but there were various reasons why I couldn't. The no victory has patently not ended that conversation. And I'm glad to see that you're nodding your head, Madam Chairman. The, um, not as noisily as the Scottish conversation, a distinct Welsh conversation is also taking place, which goes to the heart of the extraordinarily variegated identities of the Principality, and which makes Wales, by the Cardiff, by the way, one of the most exciting cities in Europe. Thanks to devolution, Wales and the Welsh, of whom I count myself one, 
having to decide what kind of whales we want. Not something that they ever really asked themselves before, unless you go back to the great heroic days of Owen Lindour, who rose in revolt against the English in, I think, probably the 14th, or maybe, no, 14th century, and was crushed for his pains. As a result of the Scottish uh, referendum, I, I detect we're beginning to get a Britain-wide conversation. In form, it's simply about the appropriate constitution for what everybody now recognises to be a, the multinational British state. But in fact, it goes much deeper than that, I think. Even though most of the participants don't seem to realise the fact. Constitutions, I think, embody and transmit values. For centuries, the values of what my hero, R.H. Tawney, memorably, memorably called the religion of inequality and its great god, Mumbo Jumbo, sort of encapsulated the values that were embodied in the British Constitution, the iconography and the rituals of the British state, the extraordinary Ruritanian absurdities of the honours list, the archaic rituals of the court, the medieval nomenclature of the second chamber, all of these things reek of inequality. The question now is whether we can junk those values and topple the great god mumbo-jumbo from his perch. Whether we can replace a culture of resentful subjecthood with a culture of citizenship. Well, why did I write this book at all? I mean, I had a lot of fun writing it, but it's also quite a lot of work. You know, nobody has to write books. I mean, I like doing it. I it seems to be my habit. But why this book? Well, the book's origins lay in my utter, uncomprehending astonishment at the response to the crisis of 2007 to 8. This was the second most devastating history in the long uh, crisis, in the long history of industrial capitalism, surpassed only by the crisis of 1929 to the early 30s. But that crisis, the crisis of 1929 to the early 30s, led political leaders in the United States, most notably in Germany, in Sweden, and even to some extent in Britain, to jettison the economic orthodoxy of what was then the recent past and embrace new approaches. N not all the new approaches were very attractive. I mean, the Nazi revolution in Germany was one of them. Nothing of the sort happened this time. No modern-day Roosevelt has called on his countrymen to drive the money changers from the temple. Imagine a president of the United States saying that. It was in his first inaugural 
Imagine that magic voice saying it as well. No 21st century Lloyd George has called for a British New Deal. <coughs> Left and right alike, I suggest, have spent the last six years searching for a cleaned up version of business as usual. In a fond hope that a combination of somewhat more effective regulation <coughs> and a somewhat fairer taxation system <coughs> will keep the old show on the road. The great question posed by the crash, what is to replace the public doctrine that came so spectacularly to grief only a few years ago has rarely been asked and even more rarely answered. Commentators like Will Hutton, my dear friend, and Edward and Robert Skidelsky have challenged that doctrine, but the response from the political world has been a kind of, sort of embarrassed, sort of almost furtive silence. Now, how could this be? I ask myself. Why the contrast between the radical new departures of the 1930s and the covetous intellectual conservatism of the last six years? Why are there so few Joshua's hunting outside the walls of the market fundamentalist Jericho? Why did Jericho's leading inhabitants fail to see that the earth was shaking beneath their feet? Normally, normally, but not always, of course, crises create opportunities for the future, as well as pain in the present. It's political will and imagination, not ineluctable fate, that determine <coughs> the outcome. The crisis of stagflation in the 1970s <coughs> paved the way for the Hayekian <coughs> ascendancy of the 1980s and 90s. The long drawn out crisis of British rule in Ireland led, after a lot of bloodshed, to the secession of the 26 counties of Southern Ireland from the United Kingdom. And the crisis of the French Fourth Republic was, was what put De Gaulle in power and created the fifth. <coughs> Why have things been so different in present day Britain? Why has our crisis ended with a whimper rather than a bang? And what does that story imply for our future as a people? Mammon's kingdom sets out the results of one man's search for answers to that question. But the key word in that sentence is search. The answers I offer are incomplete by definition. Others will produce different answers. Some will pose different questions. Part of the point of the national conversation I'm calling for is to refine and thrash out these differences. 
The need, I suggest, is urgent. The attrition of the public realm, the remorseless growth of inequality, the social pathologies associated with that growth, the humiliation suffered by those at the bottom of the economic pile, the callous indifference of those at the top, the penetration of state institutions by corporate interests, the decline of public trust, and not least the hubristic irresponsibility of a sometimes financial sector, all the stigmata of pre-crisis Britain, loom as large now as they did before 1908. Not long ago, as the crisis of 2008, what did I say? 1908. 1908. 1908. Well, that really does show a little bit old, which indeed I am. As they did before 2008. Not long ago, the Sunday Times Rich List revealed that there are now 104 billionaires in the United Kingdom worth a total of 301.133 billion between them. London is now home to more billionaires than any city, any other city in the world. Not long after the Rich List was published, the High Pay Commission reported that the average income of the poorest 20% of British households was lower than the equivalent figure in virtually all the Northwestern European nations. Britain is in fact the most unequal of the long-established democracies of the European continent. Only ex-communist Bulgaria, Latvia and Romania on the eastern periphery of the EU and ex-fascist Portugal and Spain on its southern periphery are more unequal than Britain. As I write, as I speak, a frenetic house price bubble is underway in London and South East England for which government policy clearly bears a great deal of the blame. The European Commission has urged the British government to rein in house price increases. The IMF has warned that the bubble imperils Britain's economic recovery. George Santayana's aphorism that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it seems increasingly apposite. So what should the conversation be about? I start from the premise which runs counter to the common sense of our age. I believe, as I put it in chapter two, that what I call software, not hardware, the long, slow waves of cultural change, not the more obvious technological and economic changes that figure so prominently in public debate, hold the key to the British predicament. More specifically, I argue that our ills form an interdependent system, in medical language, a syndrome, 
and that they reflect the bewilderment and disorientation who have, of a people who have forgotten the history that shaped them and who therefore no longer know who they are. That is why I believe that before we can construct a better future, we must look back to the past, not in a spirit of awestruck reverence, but to learn both from the insights that are encapsulated in our political and religious traditions and from our and our predecessors' mistakes. Through that prism, I'm looking at three major aspects of our predicament. The hollowing out of the public realm under governments of all stripes during the last 30 years, the remorseless rise of inequality and the decline of public trust that it's helped to generate, and the emergence of a governing style that I call charismatic populism and the interpenetration of corporate and state elites that charismatic populist regimes have fostered. Let me talk first about the public realm. I do not mean by the public realm the public sector. I think, for example, that nationalised industries in the days when they existed were not necessarily a part of the public realm. Uh, some non-state institutions not part of the public sector are part of the public realm and always have been. In the days before uh, this university got public funding, the academics who taught here were paid out of donation, the proceeds of donations and fees, but they were, in a way, part of the public realm because they did adhere to an ethic that uh, decreed uh, an examination system that would be fair to all the students they, they, they dealt with and ruled out the sale of degrees. But there are people who think that perhaps in certain parts of a higher education system that ethic no longer obtains, but perhaps I shouldn't. I shouldn't I mention Libya and LSE. <laughs> I won't mention Libya. Don't, sounds like don't mention the war. <laughs> well, I'm not going to mention the war, but I think Helene uh, has done my job uh, for it. The um, public realm, as I see it, is to be distinguished both from the private realm of love, friendship and family, and from the market realm of exchange, free exchanges, right? Between buyers and sellers. It's difficult to get your hands on it because it's a very complicated notion, but I think it is fundamental to existence of any civilized society that there should be a public realm of that sort. I think, I only got this idea quite late on, actually, in writing this book. But it seemed to me, I suddenly, was suddenly struck by a thought that perhaps there is a, a sort of ethical foundation to the public realm. It springs from a very deep notion 
that we are all members one of another. The notion which has been, to me anyway, expressed that it's most beautiful and powerful by John Donne in his marvelous phrase, no man is an island entire of itself, therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Um, I also think that Adam Smith, Adam Smith plays quite an interesting part in my book, actually. He's, he's oddly enough, he's one of my heroes. Um, he, he was a believer in the importance of public goods. He was in favor of trade unions. But his, that, both of those things happen in uh, uh, The Wealth of Nations. You might be surprised to know. But his earlier book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, it's important to remember that Smith was professor of moral philosophy at Glasgow University. Uh, I think gets the point better. He writes there, however selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him. Those the ties of sympathy, as described by Smith, I think, have been fundamental to the growth of the public domain. And the growth of the public of the public realm, the growth of the public realm was one of the hallmarks of 19th century Britain and also of the first half, or perhaps two-thirds, of the 20th centuries. Key episodes, for example, are the Northcote Trevelyan reforms, which stem from the Northcote, famous Northcote Trevelyan report of 1854, which created a professional civil service for the first time. Civil servants were no longer to be, so to be put there by patrons, they were to be recruited through a system of public examinations, uh, which, it has to, this has to be added, which were mentally modelled Oxford and Cambridge examinations, so you've got to expect everything uh, from that period. Um, that created a professional career civil service. That was one episode. The Lloyd George reforms, which started set up an embryonic system of national insurance is another key moment in the development of the public realm. And of course the creation of the National Health Service by another of my heroes, Anirin Bevan, under the Anglican government. Now all of that has been systematically eroded under the governments of what Simon Jenkins calls Thatcher and Sons. One of the, his best books and his best title. Well, you don't need me to tell you what Thatcher and Sons means. Ian Bancroft, who was uh, very important in the history of this college because he was the chairman of the trustees before it was a full college, Ford College, and he was a lifelong congregationalist, of course. 
in Bancroft has a wonderful throwaway phrase about what happened under Thatcher. He didn't attack her head on, and she didn't attack him. Well, she did actually sack him from his post as head of the civil service. He said that under Thatcher, there wasn't exactly politicization of the civil service. She promoted some people who were not conservative in politics. But the grovel count rose. Just think about that, the grovel count. Um, in sphere after sphere of social life, there has been a war on professionalism. The culminating point, I think, is the astounding and utterly disgraceful virtual destruction of the National Health Service by Andrew Lansley. Uh, it passes belief, but I think it's probably true that the present Prime Minister didn't have the remotest idea of what Lansley was cooking up, because here the coalition government came in with a big, brave statement, there will be no more top-down reorganizations of the health service. Meanwhile, Lansley was sitting away in some little cubbyhole somewhere, bringing this plan into the form of a white paper. That all led me in a book to quote a wonderful statement by the American uh, philosopher, and he really is a philosopher, which I don't think I am. Commercialism erodes commonality. Who is that? Michael Sandel. And in doing so, it endangers democracy. Inequality is the next big topic. I've um, dealt with that already. The crucial point, though, is worth bearing in mind, because it's a very, very curious and interesting one. Obviously, during the war, Britain became a far more equal society in terms of income than it ever had been before, or than it has ever been since. We were the British state was fighting the most terrifying existential threat it had faced in its entire history. And everybody could see that you could only beat this threat back if the public were united uh, in a way that hadn't been the case before. The, however, the interesting thing is that the so-called Gini coefficient, I'm not going to bore you with all, all the stuff about the Gini coefficient, except to say that it is the standard measure of income inequality. And the higher the Gini coefficient is, the more inequality there is. And if there was a Gini coefficient of one, it would mean that the entire wealth of the whole society would belong to one person. And if there was a Gini coefficient of naught, it would mean that there would be absolute equality. Okay? Um, the, but the interesting thing is that the Gini continued to fall after the end of World War II. It fell 
uh, in the 60s, it fell again in the 70s, it rose a bit, but only a bit, under Thatcher's first term, it only really took off after her 1983 victory. And of course it continued then to rise. It's sort of bobbed up and down a bit, but it's, there's not been a significant fall since then. And then, one of the things that I feel very strongly about, and I try to argue in the book, um, is that I think there is a very close relationship between inequality, or equality, and public trust. The more, the reason I think this is so, I have to confess to you that this was a very difficult part of the, part of the book for me, and I, I sweated over it. I'm not absolutely 100% sure I even got it right, but I think I did. Trust depends, I think, on empathy. Trust people with whom you can empathize. And empathy depends, at least to a degree, on what you might call social propinquity. You can empathize with people who are pretty close to you, close enough for you to be able to imagine what kinds of life they lead. But in a situation of really profound inequality, you can't really empathize. The people at the top of the pile certainly don't empathize with those at the bottom. They look down with a mixture of scorn and contempt. And the people at the bottom can't empathize with those at the top either, because they can't really imagine what it would be like to lead the sort of lives that people at the top actually lead. I think that, and therefore, because that is the case, trust is endangered as well, because you can't really trust people who are so unlike you that you can't begin to imagine what sort of lives they lead or what sort of people they are. And I think the uh, situation that we're in at the moment, where distrust of the so-called establishment is so rife that it's, for example, take this business about the, uh, the great inquiry into, uh, into sex, child abuse in public institutions. <laughs> it's, this, 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 of course, happened long after that book was finished, but uh, I've been staggered by this. We, we can't have anybody who is a member of the establishment, right? Well, who exactly is the establishment? Um, can you really imagine? I can. Maybe you could share it. Well, I don't think it would be a good idea. Actually, it's a massive colleague if you did. Uh, but it's very hard to imagine somebody being able to chair that inquiry who had, who was not in any way at all part of the so-called establishment. I mean, can you I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that this, this is a degree of distrust which is really deeply um, concerning, at least to me. Then the last uh, of my three points is what I call um, charismatic populism. 
Uh, and there again, this is a subtle point and difficult to um, summarize in a few phrases. What I mean by that is that I think we now have a style of governing which is different from the styles of governing that we've had in the past. Um, Gladstone was charismatic, absolutely no doubt about it. Lloyd George was charismatic, a charismatic leader too, no doubt about that. But they weren't charismatic populists. And the leaders of the recent past, Mrs. T, was a charismatic populist. She believed that she had a sort of divine revelation as to what the popular will was and that she could speak directly to the people without going through intermediaries, boring stuffed shirts in the cabinet or the civil service or anywhere else. And of course, for a long time, she got away with it. Tony Blair, another example of the same, I don't think he was quite as formidable or impressive as Mrs. Thatcher, Mind you, I didn't know him slightly, I never knew her. Uh, but do you remember him in his early days? I mean, he was really charismatic. It's hard to believe this now, but he was. He really was. And I think he too believed deep down that he spoke for an undifferentiated people. Now, if the people appeared not to agree with him, as happened uh, certainly, or it looked as though it was happening uh, during the Iraq War. Well, that was just a mistake on their part. Really and truly, they did agree with him because he was their voice. And he knew what they felt. His heart beat in time with a popular heart. I think that's what he thought as well. And under the guise of charismatic populist regimes, we have seen an extraordinary level of interpenetration between corporate, the corporate sector and the state, something of a degree that there never was before in British history, unless perhaps you go right back to the 18th century when really rich people uh, could you know, run the state in their own interests. There's been a very interesting study about the extent to which the corporate sector in Britain, the, the penetration of the institutions of the state by corporate interests is in line with other countries. And the answer is no, it's not. We've gone much further down the road of <coughs> the corporate sector somehow inveigling itself. No, not inveigling. They're invited, actually by the government to do this. Uh, and they, in effect, capture the institutions of the state uh, for their own interests. One of the most, um, to me, appalling aspects of this is what's called the revolving door. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that lovely phrase. There are revolvers in who are people who come from the corporate sector 
into the city states, into the institutions of the state, and there are revolvers out who go from serving the state into the corporate sector. Tony Blair is probably the biggest single revolver out that we've had in the last few years, but there are a whole slew of them. And the result of this, when you, when you put that into the whole equation, it's not really surprising that it becomes incredibly difficult to persuade state institutions to follow policies that would favor the disadvantaged as opposed to those advantaged. So that's not a very happy picture. But I want to end with a, I think, a happier note. As I said to you earlier, my great hero was, is, now dead of course, um, R.H. Tawney. And R.H. Tawney, I want to give you two quotations from him, I hope you can bear it. In a passage that gives the gist of his vision of democratic citizenship, he wrote that when Britain became a political democracy, she underwent no inner conversion. She accepted democracy as a convenience, like an improved system of telephones. She changed her political garments, but not her heart. She went to the ballot box touching her, her hat. Okay. Now that's, that is a, is a paragraph that speaks to me. And I think it, I can't imagine anyone who's had anything to do with this wonderful college who it wouldn't speak to. And I also want to quote from you, to you. I hope you don't mind these quotations. He <coughs> wrote a famous letter to the new statesman in the early 30s, protesting against the Labour chief whip's acceptance of knighthood. Had Labour jettison, jettisoned its belief in social equality, asked? Or does it suppose that it will convert the public to a belief in equality if it does not in its heart believe in it itself? And does it expect to persuade them of the genuineness of its convictions if prominent members of the party sit up like poodles in a drawing room, wag their tails when patted, and lick their lips at the social sugar plums tossed them by their masters. The truth is that the whole business of political honours stinks. It stinks of snobbery. It stinks of the money for which, unless rumour is wholly misleading, a good many of them are sold. And it stinks of the servile respect for wealth and social position, which remains even today 
the characteristic and contemptible vice of large numbers of our fellow citizens. Great stuff. <laughs> I hope you've got that to agree. Tawny, thou shouldst be living at this hour. <laughs> <laughs>